In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you, wherever you are. Leavers and believers, welcome to Leaving Hillsong, part three of Judgment Day. My name is Tanya, and I am so happy that you have decided to join us for part three of the transcripts from Judgment Day. The verdict delivered on the 17th of August this year in Sydney's Downing Centre local court regarding the outcome for the charge against former Hillsong pastor Brian Houston on concealing a serious indictable offence, that being his father's child sexual offences. If you haven't heard parts one and two, make sure you do because uh, that'll give you the background and we left off last time with the end of the background information and we move now into legal directions and discernment which is the title for the final 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 conclusion of the judgment this is simply a straightforward reading of the words of magistrate gareth christophe who presided over the trial and decided the verdict Enormous thanks to Matthew Drapper for lending his most incredible vocals to make this all happen for us here at Leaving Hillsong. This is part three of Judgment Day. Legal Directions There are a number of directions of law that I must give myself in considering this case. The first is a forensic disadvantage direction. 
The accused is being prosecuted for events that took place over 20 years ago. A number of witnesses with the potential to give relevant evidence have passed away. This includes John Lewis and Ian Woods, two people integral to the way the Assemblies of God responded to Frank Houston's crimes. Ian Wood, it will be recalled, was responsible for supervising Frank Houston after his credentials were withdrawn. John Lewis, the then Vice President of the Assemblies of God, chaired the relevant National Executive Committee meetings in place of the accused and was a point of contact between the Assemblies of God and members of the affiliate churches if and when inquiries were made about Frank Houston. There were a number of other people who, whilst they were called to give evidence, could not recall events with any certainty. Keith Ainge, for example, could not recall who it was that provided the purported legal advice to the special meeting of the National Executive Committee at Sydney Airport in December 1999. As will be seen from the Crown's perspective, the person who provided that legal advice is of some importance to their case. As well, a number of documents are no longer available, but which could have been available and relevant to the case had there been no delay. These include some parts of Rose Hardingham's diaries, which have now been destroyed. It also includes bank records, which would presumably have been able to assist in determining how much Mr. Senstock was paid, when he was paid, and from which bank account the money had come from. Because of these issues concerning delay, I direct myself that before I could convict the accused, I must give the prosecution case careful scrutiny. In carrying out that scrutiny, I must bear in mind the matters I have just been referring to, the fact that the prosecution evidence has not been tested to the extent that it otherwise might have been, and the inability of the accused to bring forward potential evidence to challenge it or to support his own case. There are also a number of witnesses which the Crown did not call but could have called, and who might have been expected to give relevant evidence. These witnesses include Wayne Alcorn, Kevin Mudford and Nabi Sali. Mr Sali, for example, might be expected to shed light on the payment that was made to Brett Stenstock, why it was paid, what was said when it was paid. The Crown adducted evidence of why these witnesses were not called. They had refused to provide statements. The direction I must give myself in relation to this issue is as follows. Where a witness who might have been expected to be called and to give evidence on a matter that is not called by the prosecution, the question is not whether the tribunal of fact may properly reach conclusions about issues of fact, but whether, in the circumstances, it should entertain a reasonable doubt about the guilt of the accused. Finally, evidence was called in the hearing concerning the accused's good character, he has no criminal convictions, and Mr. Ange, a person who knew him well, considered him to be a person of honesty and integrity. That evidence was unchallenged. Good character evidence is relevant to my assessment of the honesty of the accused account, and I take this into consideration. Discernment what was Brett Senstock's attitude towards going to the police? 
Mr. Senstock never made a report or any contact with the police about the sexual abuse he had suffered at the hands of Frank Houston. He did not do so as a child, and no one would have expected him to. He did not do so as an adult either, and the reasons why were explored in detail during his evidence. He did say at one point in his evidence that, quite frankly, it was just because I was paid for my silence, being a reference to the $10,000 that he was paid. He said, I believed the money was for my silence, and I was keeping up my end of the bargain. He also said that around the time that he was confronted by Barbara Taylor and Kevin Mudford, he felt ashamed and embarrassed and was hoping that no more would come of it. He was not, he said, at the time of that meeting even considering going to the police or going to the civil courts. He said it had not occurred to him to do so and that at least part of the reason for this was because he was embedded within the moral and spiritual control of the church which felt, at least, did not support the idea of raising such matters with the secular courts. Mr. Senstock also said that he believed that he told Miss Taylor at some point that he felt upset and angry towards his mother. He felt that she had betrayed his trust by telling another person about the sexual abuse, something he had not authorised her to do, and something that had been so personal and sensitive. He described it as a hideous secret. He said he felt a deep sense of embarrassment and shame at the thought of the topic being made public or being discussed by others. He also said that he felt a sense of loss of control at the disclosure having been made. Dietries made by Miss Hardingham at the time revealed that Mr. Senstock let his mother know in no uncertain terms just how upset he was at her for breaching his trust in this way. Mr. Senstock agreed with the proposition that regardless of the money that had been paid, it was still true that he did not want what had happened to him to become a matter of public knowledge. That being the way, he felt he agreed that he did not wish for there to be any investigation involving police or the secular authorities or even the church. These feelings prevailed, he said, even after being told by Ms. Taylor in around 1999 that Frank Houston had admitted to the abuse. Did the accused know that Brett Senstock did not want the matter reported to the police? There is little doubt in my view that the accused knew or believed on reasonable grounds that Brett Senstock did not want the matter reported to the police. The accused was aware that the allegation was about 30 years old and that Brett Senstock, now a mature adult of some 37 years, had not in that time reported the matter. This fact alone would have strongly suggested to the accused that Mr. Senstock did not want a police investigation. The accused gave evidence that he knew from several sources that Mr. Senstock did not want the matter taken to the police. This included a conversation with Rose Hardingham, Mr. Senstock's mother. The accused said that he was told by Ms. Hardingham that Mr. Senstock was angry with her for raising the matter with Mr. Mudford and was adamant that he did not want to make a formal complaint at the church or the police. Given Ms. Taylor gave evidence of being told in effect the same thing by Ms. Hardingham, the accused evidence on this point is entirely plausible. 
The accused also gave evidence that he was also told of Mr. Senstock's reluctance to make a formal complaint by Barbara Taylor. Miss Taylor was well aware of Mr. Senstock's reluctance to come forward. She had been engaged for some time with Mr. Senstock in an attempt to encourage him to do just that, but had not met with any success. While Miss Taylor had made it clear to Mr. Senstock that she wanted him to make a complaint to the church, not the secular authorities, the main difficulty she had faced with getting Mr. Senstock to make any complaint at all. So much is clear from the correspondence and notes that she kept and which are in evidence. Given these things were all known to Miss Taylor, it seems likely that she would have discussed them with the accused. She had no reason not to. The accused also gave evidence that he was told directly by Mr. Stenstock himself that Mr. Stenstock did not want to make a report to the police. As I said, this is a matter of contention because Mr. Senstock denies ever saying those words to the accused. However, given the relevant phone call between the two men occurred over 20 years ago, and given no contemporaneous notes were taken of the conversation, common sense dictates that Mr. Senstock may have told the accused words to that effect, perhaps since forgotten. He would only have been repeating what his attitude actually was at the time and what he had already told his mother and Ms. Taylor. There is no apparent reason why Mr. Senstock would not have told the accused of his desire for anonymity. Further, a finding that the accused had come to believe that Mr. Senstock did not want the matter to go to the police is confirmed in my view by the minutes of the Special National Executive Committee meeting at the Sydney airport on 22nd December 1999. As I have previously stated, these minutes state that the complainant does not wish to be identified, and does not wish to make a formal complaint. It was the accused who formed the meaning of that fact. This is a contemporaneous record of the accused's belief at that time. It also happened to be an accurate description of what Mr. Senstock's position actually was. It is consistent with the accused's evidence that he had been told just that by a number of people, including Brett Senstock. It is also consistent with statements the accused himself made to other members of the church, his congregation, and even journalists since that time. Were Mr. Sensock's views irrelevant to the accused? I have found that the accused knew or believed on reasonable grounds that Mr. Sensock did not want the matter reported to the police. He therefore had a reasonable excuse for not bringing the information he had concerning Frank Houston's crimes to the attention of the police. It might be thought that that would be the end of the matter. However, the Crown wants to make a more subtle argument that focus on the accused's intentions behind his decisions not to go to the police. As the Crown put in its case in its closing address, even if the accused genuinely believed that Mr. Senstock did not want the matter reported to the police because he had heard that directly from Mr. Senstock or heard it from someone else, that is not a reasonable excuse for not reporting the matter to the police. And that is because that is not the reason why the accused did not report the matter to the police. The Crown submits the accused did not report the matter because he was trying to protect the church and his father from police involvement. The Crown's submission is that this excuse is at best a convenient excuse which the accused had adopted to explain why he did not report the matter to the police.
If you happen to know a state of affairs that has no impact whatsoever on how you act, it cannot be an excuse as to why you did not act. That is the position of the Crown as it put its case in its closing address. There are two immediate problems with this argument that suggest it may be a weak one. The first is that where the accused had two different reasons to not do something, trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was exclusively motivated by one of those reasons and not the other, strikes me as a tall order indeed. The second is that I do not see any reason why a convenient excuse may not also be a reasonable one. There was an alignment in both the interests of Mr. Senstock and the interests of the church, at least in so far as the accused interpreted them. Mr. Senstock wanted anonymity, the accused and his church, the Crown argues, wanted the same thing. Why could the accused not have been motivated by both interests? Put differently, why wouldn't the accused avail himself of an excuse if it were also in his interest to do so? To make its argument, the Crown relies upon a combination of circumstances to which I shall now turn. The first circumstance is that the accused was informed by Ms Taylor at the meeting with Mr McMartin on the 26th of November 1999 that she believed that there was a possibility that Mr Senstock would take the matter to the court. It is unclear to me how that circumstances could support the Crown argument. Firstly, Mr Senstock's evidence was that he was not contemplating taking the matter to court. It is therefore unclear what Ms Taylor meant when she made that notation about something that she said at the meeting. Secondly, even if Mr Senstock were at that time contemplating taking the matter to court, that is never a decision that he settled upon doing, nor was it a decision which fell to the accused or anyone else to take away from him. The next circumstance relied upon by the Crown is that the accused knew that Ms Taylor was pressuring Mr Senstock not to go to the police. It is unclear to me how that circumstance could support the Crown argument either. Firstly, Ms Taylor's difficulty was in getting, as I have said, Mr Senstock to come forward and make a formal complaint to anyone. Her strong preference was for him to make a complaint to the church rather than to the secular courts, and she made that plain to Mrs. Senstock, but that is different from saying that she was pressuring him to not go to the police at all. Mr. Senstock was not at that time poised to go to the police. Even if it were accepted that Ms. Taylor was placing pressure upon Mr. Senstock not to go to the police, there is no evidence in support of an argument that the accused acted without regard to Mr. Senstock's wishes. There is no evidence that the accused joined Ms. Taylor in her encouragement or persuasion or pressure for Mr. Senstock to make a complaint to the church rather than the police. Perhaps it may be argued that being aware that Ms. Taylor was pressuring Mr. Senstock to make a complaint to one body over another, that the accused ought to have stepped in to ensure that such pressure ceased. However, I cannot see how this failure to do that provides support for the Crown argument. The Crown must prove that the accused, as I said, did not have a... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The reasonable excuse. The accused is not required to prove that he argued that he acted in all cases in a perfectly appropriate manner in the way he handled this matter. The next circumstance relied upon by the Crown is the accused's involvement in the payment of $10,000 to Brett Sandstock and his failure to bring that to the attention of the National Executive Committee. The Crown argues that this was hush money. It is not in dispute that Frank Houston and Nabi Sali met with Mr. Sandstock and agreed to pay him $10,000. Mr. Sandstock, as I have said, signed a napkin at that meeting, but the evidence as to what the terms of the agreement were is entirely unclear. Mr. Sandstock recalled Frank Houston saying at the meeting, words to the effect, let's just keep this to ourselves. Certainly, Mr. Sandstock said that he believed that the money was being paid for his silence. Mr. Sandstock gave evidence which I accept, that Frank Houston advised him to contact the accused if he did not receive the money. It is not in dispute that Mr. Senstock did phone the accused about the money sometime after the meeting when the money had not been forthcoming. That contact ultimately facilitated the transfer of the money, albeit the accused denies being involved in the payment other than raising the issue with Nabi Sali and or his mother. The accused admits that he was aware that Frank Houston had intended to make such a payment before it occurred. It was for this reason that the accused said he met with a lawyer at Mallison's in the company of Nabi Sali. The purpose of that Mallison's meeting, according to the accused, as I have said, was to draft a document specifically to state that the money was not hush money and was not being paid by the church. That may be doubted, and evidence given by the accused on this topic was entirely unsatisfactory in my view. Firstly, there was no explanation why the accused would go to the trouble of seeing a solicitor to draft such an important document, but neither keep a copy of the document himself, nor make any inquiries later about whether the money was paid in accordance with that document. Secondly, why would the accused involve himself with the payment of money to Brett Sandstock at all? especially given the obvious conflict of interests and given the fact the National Executive Committee had by then, according to the accused, taken charge of the matter and that he had taken a back seat. Thirdly, why was it that the accused failed to inform the National Executive Committee that this money had been paid and that he had involved himself in the payment? Quite clearly, it was wrong for the accused, the President of the Assemblies of God, to be involving himself at 
any level in the extra curial payments to the victim of a child sexual abuse offence where the perpetrator was a minister of an Assemblies of God church, not to mention the father of the accused. However, I cannot be satisfied that this payment of this money was an attempt to silence Mr. Senstock, as opposed to some kind of informal form of financial compensation. Mr. Senstock, on his own evidence, states that he was not at that time contemplating going to the police. He did not need to be silenced. He said that notwithstanding the payment of this money, he did not want the matter to become a matter of public knowledge. The next circumstance relied upon by the Crown is said to be the existence of what the Crown described as a culture in the Church and of its members to protect the Church from scandal. The Crown argued that in the culture of the church, the accused knew that none of these others, all the faithful church people, all his subordinates, would report this to the police. The Crown argued this culture allowed him to not only make disclosures of his father's criminal offending to other members of the church, but to place himself as the only conduit of information between the National Executive Committee and Mr. Senstock, and allowed him to exclude Ms. Taylor from any further involvement. I am not of the view that this assists the Crown argument. Firstly, there is no evidence that there was such a culture within the Assemblies of God or its many churches. The Crown argues that because nobody within the Assemblies of God church who heard about Frank Houston's offending ever made a report to the police, then it must follow that there existed a culture of cover-up within the church or churches. I find this argument unpersuasive because it is circular. Secondly, the evidence is that at this time, allegations of child sexual abuse against ministers within the Assemblies of God was virtually unheard of. That being the case, it seems most unlikely that any culture could develop around something that did not exist. Thirdly, the Assemblies of God was a collection of independent churches, as I have said, stretching right across Australia. The National Executive Committee consisted of very senior and experienced pastors, each coming from their own churches within their own traditions and each having their own expectations. Evidence was adducted at the hearing that the members of the National Executive Committee were not yes-men. Submission that was adducted could depend upon the National Executive Committee members to respond in any predictable way that may align with its own interests is not supported by the evidence. Fourthly, the evidence is that at the relevant National Executive Committee meetings, the accused was not involved in any decisions that were made about how to handle the issue. It was not the accused who was allocated himself to the task of speaking to Mr. Sandstock. Fifthly, there is no evidence that the accused took any step to exclude Ms. Taylor from any further involvement in the matter. Once the matter had been escalated to the National Executive Committee, Miss Taylor was satisfied that her job had been done. Perhaps it might be said that the accused should have made a better effort to keep Miss Taylor informed. However, when she did make an inquiry, he promptly made contact with her and informed her that the matter had been taken to the National Executive Committee. The next circumstance relied upon by the Crown is that the accused, it is submitted, deliberately lied to the National Executive Committee at the Sydney Airport meeting in December 1999 by informing them that he hadn't received to the effect they were not obliged to report the matter to the police. 
This was done, according to the accused, to ensure that no one on the National Executive Committee would report the matters to the police. This is evidence, the Crown argues, of the accused acting with complete disregard to the wishes of Mr. Senstock. At first instance, I note that this argument is consistent with the previous argument that the Crown had made to the effect that the accused could be assured, because of a culture within the Church, that the members of the National Executive Committee would not make a disclosure to the police. Further, in my view, the evidence does not support the making of a finding that it was the accused who conveyed the legal advice to the meeting. The minutes do not nominate who it was, or in what circumstances the legal advice had been sought. The accused denies it was him. Mr. Ange could not recall who it was. At least one other person, Wayne Alcorn, was aware of Mr. Senstock's allegations well before the meeting. It is conceivable that Mr. Alcorn had obtained the legal advice, but Mr. Alcorn was not called to give evidence to confirm or deny this. The balance of the National Executive Committee members who attended that meeting were not witnesses in the Crown case. The next circumstance relied upon by the Crown is the use of what was described as sanitised language, employed by the accused when speaking of his father offending during public sermons. I have referred to this evidence in the body of my judgment. The Crown argues that the accused did not make it explicit enough that Frank Houston was a paedophile. The conclusion, says the Crown, is that this was a cover-up. In my view, this is another weak argument. Firstly, by the time the accused was referring to this matter in his congregation in public sermons, the evidence is that he had told many people, at various levels of the Assemblies of God and within his own church, of exactly what his father had done. Whilst the accused may have been euphemistic at times when speaking to large gatherings of thousands of people, it would have been perfectly obvious to anyone what he was talking about. Anyone who was left wondering needed only to ask around to obtain the details about what the accused was referring to. Secondly, the obvious conclusion to draw from the fact that the accused was speaking of the issue publicly to his congregation, speaking to those watching the television broadcasts of these sermons around the world, and speaking to journalists, is that he wanted people to know about it. That is the very opposite of a cover-up. Speaking more generally in making its argument, the Crown has identified circumstances which, it says, supports the finding that the accused was not acting with the interests of Mr. Sandstock in mind when he did not report the matter to the police. He was acting, the Crown says, exclusively with the intention of protecting the reputation of the Church by concealing the matter as much as he could. However, in my view, the Crown, in making their argument, ignores other circumstances which, it may readily be argued, point in the other direction. The accused was not slow to act. He began speaking to senior members within the Assemblies of God and his church almost immediately upon receiving Mr. Senstock's allegations. He also spoke to Ms. Taylor and Mr. Mudford, he did not dismiss the allegations out of hand. He made the difficult decision to challenge his father about the allegations and was confronted by a startling admission. 
He immediately suspended his father's credentials and removed him from public ministry. Within a short period of time, he then called an emergency meeting of the National Executive Committee and promptly brought the matter to their attention. He did not conceal the true nature of the allegation to the National Executive Committee or even attempt to do so, nor did he conceal from them the very significant piece of information that very few other people knew, namely, that his father had confessed. He did not seek to dictate how the National Executive Committee would deal with the matter. He did involve himself in the decision-making on the matter. He informed the National Executive Committee of Mr. Senstock's wishes for anonymity and the fact that Mr. Senstock did not want to make a complaint. When further allegations came to light to the effect that his father had sexually abused more victims, he also promptly brought that information to the attention of the National Executive Committee too. He again relinquished any role in the decisions that were then made about the New Zealand allegations. In fact, as I said, he left the room. The investigation that followed about the matter was not conducted, directed or controlled by the accused, nor did he seek to conduct, direct or control that investigation. He allowed the National Executive Committee to act as it saw fit. Ultimately, he spoke widely and freely about these matters in public settings. None of these circumstances are consistent, in my view, with a cover-up. Any allegation of a cover-up must assess all of the relevant circumstances, not just some of them. I am not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the Crown has proved that the accused, in not reporting the matter to the police, had no regard to the wishes of the complainant for that not to occur. I am, therefore, not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused did not have a reasonable excuse for not reporting the information he had to the police. That being the case, one of the elements of the offence before the court remains unproven and the verdict therefore must be not guilty. Doesn't he give you all kinds of Marlena Dietrich in witness for the prosecution? She throws her hand up. I wrote the letters. Thank you so much, Draps, for helping us out with that historic document. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this very special three-part edition of Leaving Hillsong. The verdict of, uh, of Brian Houston's criminal trial. Interesting turnout. Tell you what, after reading it, you know, ten times, I'm not sure if... The good magistrate wasn't sending out a few hints or, uh, you know, things that could be followed up or um, things that, hmm, it's interesting the way he came to certain conclusions. I'm sure you've all got lots of opinions and we should get together and talk about that. For now, we will bid you farewell. Thank you for... Uh, Holding on, and uh, it's been a very interesting nearly a year since that trial began. The transcripts took some time because 
who knows. But we got them. And uh, now we know a little bit more about exactly what went on record. Thank you for your support, your messages, your comments, your shares, your likes. As always, super, super appreciated. And a huge thank you to my patrons. You really do make Leaving Hill Song possible in more ways than you know. And if you want to be a part of that, check out Leaving Hill Song Patreon. I do have a very special specialist in law coming to talk to us about that verdict and that decision. And that, uh, that interview is going to be recorded tomorrow. So we've got more of this to pull apart. Until then, please keep being kind to yourselves. Kind to the people around you. What are they going to do about it? Send in your thoughts, your reactions to this. It's, uh, I've tried to stay as uh, <coughs> impartial as possible, but uh, people have got some pretty strong views on this, so make them known. Keep following the socials. Look after yourselves. And we'll talk soon. Bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.